Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for the invitation to come back to Hamilton Baptist. It's always a joy. And I'm especially grateful for the opportunity of looking at this passage of Scripture that you've given me this morning. I've never looked at it in great detail before, but I've found it to be very, very encouraging and uh, struggling to fit it all into one morning service. But let's, let's give it a go. You are very well educated biblically in this church because you've been listening to sound teaching for very many years and so that you are very aware that there are four Gospels. Isn't that right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of the Gospels gives us a, a, a distinct emphasis, a slightly different picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to think of it a little bit like a, a house, a house. And uh, you might have in that house, oh, I've got a picture of a house here in front of me, but you don't. Uh, we're nearly there, are we? Are we getting there? Okay. Not to worry. In a house, just imagine a, f a, f a house, you've got downstairs, you've got a sitting room and you've got a kitchen, and then you've got upstairs and, and, and two bedrooms. And when you look out on the garden, you get the same view, but a different perspective from each of the windows. A different perspective from each of the windows. Matthew emphasizes uh, the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark emphasizes his servanthood. Jesus was a, a servant. Uh, Luke emphasizes his humanity, his manhood. And John's gospel emphasizes the fact that Jesus is God, that he stepped as deity into humanity. Towards the, well, the very start of John's gospel, we read some wonderful verses that give us truth, teach us about Jesus as God. It says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And who was the word? Well, of course, the word was Jesus. And in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he's teaching us about Jesus who stepped as deity into humanity. Jesus as God. And towards the end of the gospel, we're told why the gospel was written. In John 20, verse 31, John writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is telling us that the whole gospel is written so that we, the readers, might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that as a result of believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that we might have life in his name. John's purpose is that we might have faith in Jesus. So let's just focus on the text and read the verses together. Verses 10 to 18. The word... He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I hope you have Bibles with you because it's all on PowerPoint, but the PowerPoint is uh, not working for some reason, so it would be helpful for you to follow this through in your Bible because the text, there's an awful lot in it, and we're going to hit the text in spots. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you so very much for the wonder of your word, that you have given us your word because you have loved us enough to want to communicate with us, to share your truth with us. And we pray, O Lord, that in your mercy and grace, that your spirit would shed light on the word, that we might not only be able to turn it over in our minds, but that your Holy Spirit would just knock it down those 10 inches so that it impacts our hearts as well. So please, Lord, in your mercy, draw very close to us. We ask it, Father, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, focusing on the text, the first thing we notice in verse 10, the first verse we read, was that Jesus wasn't recognized. The text says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Oh, well. Hey, fantastic. Thank you, Lord. Don't you love it when it all goes wrong? You just have to rely on God a little bit more than you normally do. So the first thing we want to notice is that Jesus was not recognized. Oh, I think we've gone on one here. Yeah, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So we ask the question, why didn't the world recognize Jesus? Why didn't they recognize him? That's a good question. Well, the simple answer is that they didn't want him. They didn't want him. And isn't that true in much of the world in which we live today. And yet if you think back, when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, we find the innkeeper didn't want him. He didn't have room, but he didn't want him either. And so the Lord of glory is born in a stable. And then, perhaps two years later, the, the magi, the wise men, come from the east and they go to speak, um, to find out, to the king, to find out uh, who was born, where was the one who was born king of the Jews. And Herod didn't know. And Herod felt terribly threatened. So Herod called for the, the, the religious leaders. And the religious leaders said, oh, yes, the Bible tells us, or the Old Testament tells us, that uh, the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. 
And what's really interesting is that the Magi, the wise men from the east, went to Bethlehem to find him. But the religious leaders who knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, they didn't stir themselves to go to find out. Why? They didn't want to know. And Herod didn't want to know because two years later, he organized for troops to go and to kill all the infants in uh, Bethlehem. How terribly sad that was. John chapter 3 verse 19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Well, try talking to folks today about the real meaning of Christmas. And they look at you as though you're some kind of a religious nut. You see, many folks only want to focus on the festive fun because they don't want to know. And the second reason that Jesus wasn't recognized was the, the problem of what we call spiritual blindness. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People can't see because they are spiritually blind. And that's the consequence of what we call the fall. When sin entered into the world, it made us blind so that we couldn't see. We couldn't see truth. How terribly sad that is. And that's why God sent John the Baptist to bear witness to the light of the world, the delight that, that Christ was coming into the world. That's why John the Baptist came. There, there was a, a well-known preacher of yesteryear called Donald Barnhouse. And he was preaching in Ireland, and I think it must have been in about 1939 or early in 1940, just at the very outset of the Second World War. And people were frightened about bombs coming and, the, 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 and air raids. And during the series, his, his ministry series, uh, it, it, it fell at a time when people needed to turn off the lights because they didn't want to allow... Uh, bombers uh, to, 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 to know where they were and possibly drop bombs on them. So Donald Barnhouse was preaching one evening in the church and it was getting dark and all of a sudden somebody accidentally turned the lights on. And of course there was consternation. Uh, bombing raids hadn't happened but they, they, they might happen and folks were frightened. And in all of the fuss, Bar Barnhouse stopped preaching. And there was a man in the front row of the church and he, 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 he got quite agitated. What's going on? What's going on? Why has he stopped? And of course, somebody explained to him that Barnhouse had stopped preaching because the lights had come on. Now, that man was blind and he couldn't see. He couldn't see. And that man, if you like, is a picture of all men when the light of Jesus first shone upon the world. He was the light he was in the world, but the world went around its business and John the Baptist came crying out, the light is on, the light is here, look, the light is here. But when that was said, the world looked with sightless sunken eyes and said, what is the light? 
What is light? And they didn't respond until God reached down and touched some of their lives. And Peter later wrote in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So, Jesus was not recognized because people didn't want to know and they couldn't see anyway. There was spiritual blindness. And the next thing we notice is that Jesus wasn't received. Look at verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Well, we wonder, did they have an excuse for not receiving Jesus? There was a a preacher of yesteryear called Billy Sunday, and Billy Sunday is famous for having said, an excuse is a lie wrapped up in the skin of a reason. Did they have an excuse for not recognizing Jesus? Well, you and I are pretty good at making excuses, aren't we? When I came to Glasgow, one of the first expressions I learned was, it was near me. (laughs) It was near me. And in fact, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, that really kind of thinking was started by Adam, wasn't it? When God came into the garden and Adam said, hey, uh, it wasn't me, it was her. She she and her vitamin C. Uh, And actually, I just want to remind you that you gave her to me. So it was everybody's fault except Adam's fault. It's called the blame game, and we've refined it uh, down through the years. But the truth is this, that God will not allow us to get away with excuses even today. You see, Israel, they had the word of God, which included the prophecies about his coming. They had information that God was sending a Messiah. But they were a little bit selective. They focused on the bits they liked while ignoring the rest. Isn't that what we do sometimes? We focus on the bits we feel comfortable with and we ignore the rest. It's not the bits that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the bits that I do understand. Maybe you're a little bit like me. Well, when John the Baptist came, the people were amazed and intrigued by the ministry of John the Baptist. But they chose to ignore the message that he preached about. And when Jesus came preaching and teaching, there were many folks who chose to ignore his message too. But he came with the gospel. And it says in verses 12 and 13, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Well, that's amazing. He says that that people who receive him become children of God. Well, what does it mean to become a child of God? How do we become a child of God? Well, there is some confusion which I think the Holy Spirit knew about, so he gave us some uh, clarification. He says that children born not of natural descent. That means that we can't get into the kingdom of God because our parents are Christians. You see, God has no grandchildren. And yes, 
When our children grow up and we pour our lives into them, there is an element of inherited faith. But, but that faith has to transition from being inherited to becoming personally owned because God has no grandchildren. He goes on to say, nor of human decision. We don't become God's children by deciding to turn over a new leaf and to behave better in future, promising not to kick the neighbor's dog, uh, or, or anything like that. That doesn't make us Christian. The, the kingdom is open to us by God's decision. It is the gift of God's grace. New birth is not by a husband's will. Maybe our parents prayed for us before we were born and God graciously answered. But please understand that new birth comes because of what God does in our hearts. What God does in our hearts. And the marvelous thing is that we have a story to tell each of us if we know him. But our stories are all different. And yet it's the Spirit of God that brings us to that place, that point where we understand that we need him and that we reach out for him. New birth comes because of what God does in our hearts. I just love the second part of that verse. It says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, the right to become children of God. I'm sure that you've all done history at school in the days past and you will all recognize that figure as being Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, there is a story told about Napoleon on one of his military campaigns. He, he had paused, he'd let go the reins of his horse to read some papers. And as he was uh, reading the papers, the horse reared up and nearly unseated him. And a corporal, uh, a lowly corporal of the grenadiers, uh, leapt forward and cut the bridle of the emperor's horse and very uh, quickly uh, brought the animal under control. And, and Napoleon, so relieved, turned and said to the corporal, Thank you, Captain. Thank you, Captain. Uh, and the corporal heard himself being addressed as Captain, so he responded to Napoleon by saying, of what regiment? Of what company? And Napoleon said, of my guards, which were, were his elite troops. So in an instant, that soldier threw down his musket, walked across the field towards the headquarters of the general staff, and he tore off his corporal's stripes, and he, he, he took his place among the emperor's officers. And somebody said to him, what are you doing here? And he replied that he was a captain of the guards. And they looked at him, this scruffy soldier, and they said, by whose authority? And he responded by saying, by the authority of the emperor. That's how he responded. It all depends on the authority of the commander involved. You see, if another of his corporal friends had called him captain, he would have, uh, he would have, they would have had a laugh together, but it would have meant nothing. But when the order was given by the emperor, it instantly, and it, it was seized upon instantly, and it was then received as a captain by the staff. And in the same way, our position 
before God as God's children depends on the highest authority in the universe. And that authority belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every knee shall bow. And we can be bold in saying that we are children of God. Not only was this the message that Jesus preached, but this gospel is powerful. Paul writes about that in Romans, and he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that word power, the gospel is the power of God, that's a wonderful word. It's a word from which we get our English word dynamite. Dynamite. Blowing up things. This is powerful stuff. This gospel is powerful. The gospel has the power to change lives. My wife is uh, the pastoral worker in, in KBC. And uh, only this week past, she went to visit a, a, a family who were going through some circumstances. And there was the, the mother and the father, and the daughter was there with them. And after a while, the, 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 the daughter said, could we sing a chorus together? This is not, not usual in a pastoral visit. But, but my wife said, of course. So they sang a couple of choruses. Then the girl looked at her mum, and her mum said yes. And Anne, my wife, wondered what was going on. And then this little girl said that she had just asked Jesus to become her saviour. And uh, she said it was really interesting that having asked Jesus to come to, to be her saviour, she went off to school. And a few of her friends looked at her and said, what's happened to you? Some, you're different. And she was able to tell them that she was different because Jesus was now her saviour. The gospel is powerful. And we read uh, in 1 John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. If you belong to Jesus, you are a child of God. But the gospel is also simple. It's not only powerful, it's simple. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't it interesting? Receive and believe. And that's what we have to do today. This is the message that Jesus came uh, to bring. And that leads us on to verse 14, which speaks to us of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a little phrase which appears twice in the verses that we read together. And it's the little expression, grace and truth. Now notice that the text tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not half full of grace and truth, but full of grace and truth. Well, let's bore down into that just a little bit. What, what does that mean to be full of grace? Well, there are a number of ways of thinking about grace. And let me just share with you one way that I find a little bit helpful. Justice is when we get what we deserve. That's simple enough. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And grace 
is when we get what we don't deserve. I, I, I'll go over it again because it can be a little bit confusing. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Isn't that right? That's justice. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. But grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And the truth is we don't deserve God's kindness, but God is incredibly kind to us. And someone has said, with a little bit of humor, that grace is that which God does within us without us. In other words, it's that which God does within us without any contribution from us. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we are saved. That's true. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we are saved. So grace is really... Uh, the generosity of God's love. And verse 16 says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Remember, his grace, he's full of grace, not just half full, but he's full of grace. And from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. In other words, when we receive grace, we were given everything that we would need. Grace is abundantly adequate. In the 17th century, a young boy was born into a Christian home, and for the first six years of his life, he was very happy. He heard the truths of the gospel, and he was loved by his parents. But at the age of six, sadly, his parents died. And as an orphan, He went to live with some of his relatives, and they were not nice people. They maltreated him, they abused him, and they ridiculed his faith and interest in Christ. And things got so bad that that little orphan boy ran away. And he joined the Royal Navy. And in the Navy, his life just seemed to go downhill. He became known as a brawler, a fighter, and he was whipped many times. He participated in heel hauling, which was a terrible form of punishment that uh, led generally to death. And uh, he, he, he participated in all of that. And finally, when he was still young, he deserted the Royal Navy and he fled to Africa, where he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader. And then his life reached the lowest point. There were times when he actually ate off the floor on his hands and knees, and he escaped from that slave trader, and he became attached to another slave trader, and he became the first mate on that slave trader's ship. But the young man's pattern of life had become so depraved that he stole the ship's whiskey, and he got so drunk that he fell overboard, and he was nearly drowning But he was spotted by one of the other sailors. And you know what they did? They took a harpoon and they threw it at his body in the water. And the harpoon went into his side. And they dragged him and they got him back on board the ship. And he had this big scar in his side for all of his days. He couldn't get much lower. But finally, his ship was in a terrible storm off the north coast of County Antrim, not too far from somewhere between Scotland and Northern Ireland. And after days and days of pumping water out of the ship, he reached the end of himself, and he remembered some of the things that he'd been taught about God, and about the reality of God, and about the grace of God. So in the midst 
of his desperate situation, he called out to God. And he was marvelously converted, and his name was John Newton. And he wrote that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the marvelous thing that that story teaches us is that there is nobody beyond the reach of God's grace. Our Lord Jesus is full of grace. And you know, whenever you and I come to him, maybe we've stumbled and blown it big time. When we come to him and cast ourselves upon him, what do we receive from him? We receive grace. That's his default position, to be gracious towards us. How wonderful that is to know that we are never beyond the reach of of his grace. No matter how many times we confess, and we probably all confess more than once a day, twice a day, three times a day, maybe even more than that, when we confess, his response is a response of grace. The enemy sits on our shoulders and he whispers into our ears and he says, you are such a sinner. Remember, and he'll parade in front of our minds some of the stuff that we've maybe forgotten, stuff of which we are ashamed. And he says it's so bad you need to go back and ask for forgiveness again. But that's his work. That's what he does. And when we go back to God and say, please forgive me, Father, for that sin that I committed when I was growing up, God says, what sin, son? Because he says, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He casts them into the sea of his his forgetfulness. And I think he posts a sign that says, no fishing. That's his heart. His heart is filled with grace for us. So he pours out grace. He's full of grace and truth. Well, what about truth? We know that truth is one of the names of Jesus, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. It's one of the names for God. And in Psalm 51, we find that God is dealing with David after his sin with Bathsheba. And that psalm records the steps back to God. And there's a very interesting little expression, verse 6. It says, David says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Well, if God desires truth to be in the inner parts, it's because truth isn't there. So God desires truth in the inner parts. Truth is the character of God, and that's where you and I must stand. You see, when we handle the Bible, we are not dealing with the opinions of men. We're handling truth. And people's eternal destiny depends on how they relate to the eternal truth in Jesus Christ. And he is absolutely unique. Look at verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John the Baptist recognized that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Now, there are some people who consider Jesus to be a good man, and he was indeed a good man. 
Other folks consider him to be a good example, and he was a good example. But if that's all you can see in Jesus, then your view of him is entirely misleading. You see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the source of all blessing. There's a really interesting reference here. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Well, what's that all about? Well, there's a wonderful contrast here, which I think is really uh, helpful. Do you remember the law was just a big, long list of stuff the folks were supposed to do or refrain from doing? That's what the law was. But... We've come into a new era, which is salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, the works of the law. And this has come to us through Jesus. It's a wonderful contrast. You see, under the law, God demanded righteousness from people. He demanded goodness and kind of holiness. That's what he demanded. Under grace, Jesus gives it to us. He gives us his righteousness, his goodness. Under Law, blessings accompany Christ's obedience. But under grace, God bestows blessings as a free, as a free gift. The law is powerless to secure righteousness and life for a sinful race. But grace came in its fullness with Christ's death and resurrection to make people like us right before God. How extraordinary that is. That's the message of the Son of God who stepped from the glory of heaven into humanity to rescue us. I just want to draw to a conclusion by reminding you of something the Lord said to his disciples he had just begun to explain to them that he was going to go and to leave them, ascend into heaven, and that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And they were a little bit troubled because they kind of relied on the visible presence of Jesus amongst them. But they had to learn that Jesus was present whether they could see him or not. And so we read in John 14, verses 1 to 3, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you, may, you also may be where I am. I'm going to prepare a place for you. My darling mum died a number of years ago in Southern Ireland. But I used to go back to see her from time to time. And it was always very special when I went back. I can remember the last time I went back, I flew over and I got a train from a, a, a bus, no, a bus from the, the airport into the centre of Dublin. Then I got a bus down to my mother's house. And my mother was wondering, where was I? So she must have phoned my wife in Glasgow uh, about five times, to find, where, where, where is Michael? 
And I got, I got off the bus uh, in a local town, and it was about a mile to my mother's house. So I thought, well, I'll just walk. I, I was too, I've been in Scotland too long to pay for a taxi. So I, 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 I walked, and my mother was ringing my wife, where, where is he? And when I finally arrived, oh, what a welcome I got. My darling mum had made my favourite meal for me. Not only had she made my favourite meal, she knew that I, I really like oranges. So she'd been out and she'd bought a big bowl of those lovely, big, juicy oranges. She'd made preparation for me because I was coming home. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's not a task that he was going to delegate to a junior apprentice angel. I'm going to prepare a place for you. What preparation? That's why it says in Ecclesiastes, the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of death for the Christian is because we're going home. And he's made preparation. He's made preparation. I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the, the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So that just brings us back to that little expression about believing and receiving. And I just have to ask you this morning, have you believed and received? Because when we believe, we, we receive Christ into our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit. And the most marvelous thing is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ stands, as it were, with his arms open wide, ready to accept and embrace those who come. So have you believed and received? If you haven't, if you're unsure, Please don't leave the church without speaking to somebody. This is so important. Eternity hangs in this. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so very much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he came. And we bless you that he is our Saviour and Lord. And we thank you for his heart, which we see so beautifully laid bare in the scriptures, reminding us that each of us matters to you. And we just ask in these moments that your Holy Spirit would help us each one so that we might see him, not as a historical figure, of some import, but that we might see him as he is, the Son of God. We thank you that a day is coming when every, when every eye shall see him and every tongue shall confess him as Jesus, Jesus is Lord and every knee shall bow before him. His glory will be so present. Give us a glimpse, O Lord, and may our hearts overflow with worship and thanksgiving to you for all that you are and all that you've done. We ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.